What we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode from the WW Radio Archives. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 710. I'm going to open up the archives once again this week, this time going back to October 2011 and show number 244, where we look at Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, its history, legacy, details, and future. And I recorded this in honor of Walt Disney World's 40th anniversary and And I wanted to look at an attraction that was not open on Walt Disney World's opening day in 1971, but was so, and remains, so deeply rooted in Walt Disney World's history and sense of nostalgia, and more importantly, its direct connection to Walt Disney. So I went to Tomorrowland, right outside of Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, and met with my longtime friend, author, raconteur, historian, Jim Corcus, to do a segment that I sort of called a part Wayback Machine, part DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, but really take a deep dive at not just the history, but the stories and the people behind this attraction, and also leave you with some questions that I think still to this day might be a little thought-provoking and ones that hopefully you have an opinion that you can share on over in the WW Radio Clubhouse at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can also answer the question. Let me know what you think about this or any episode by calling the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. And if you want even more Carousel of Progress, back on show 136, I did a very sort of different look at the Carousel of Progress. We sort of called it a DSI, Disney Scene Investigation, but came at it from some different angles with a different guest who was joining me as well. So if you're a Carousel of Progress fan or just want to learn some more, again, you could also go back to show number 136. If you enjoy this episode, please tell a friend, share it on social. If there's an episode from the archives you'd like me to bring up and share in the feed, you can email me, lou at wdwradio.com or connect with me on social, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Lou Mangello. And of course, you can find everything at wdwradio.com. So sit back, relax, and come with me to Tomorrowland and Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom for a look and listen at Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. With October 1st, 2011, marking the 40th anniversary of Walt Disney World, many of us are getting a bit nostalgic. And on the show, one thing that I want to do is sort of look back at some of those opening day attractions that we've had a chance to explore and examine in depth uh, over the last couple of weeks and months. And moving forward, there's one more that we wanted to hit that really isn't an opening day attraction at all. In fact, it took a number of years before it came to Walt Disney World, but because It's classic because it's iconic, because of its relationship to Walt. I thought it appropriate that we talk about it when we talk about the history of Walt Disney World. And now might be, now is the time, now is the best time. There is a great, big, beautiful Jim Corcus sitting here with me to talk about Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. Jim, welcome back. Well, Lou, always a pleasure to be on your show. You have some of the, uh, as we were talking earlier, you have some of the greatest listeners uh, in the world. I just absolutely love them. I'm always uh, uh, flattered when some come up and say, you know, I heard you on Lou's podcast. I I enjoyed that. 
and uh, they're all so positive and uh, uh, friendly. And uh, you know, when we were at uh, incredibly De- good looking too <laughs> at, at Destination D, uh, we you had that I had that one listener come up while the two of us were talking, and he goes, "Oh, you're Jim Corcus. I, I really enjoy your podcast with Lou, but." But you sound much shorter on the on the radio. And both of us looked at each other and go, "How do you sound shorter on the radio?" I can. I sound shorter everywhere I go. <laughs> but you got a big heart, buddy. A big heart, as I always say. And again, yes, we're sitting right outside uh, Carousel of Progress, one of my favorite uh, attractions. And as you alluded to, it wasn't open on, on October first, nineteen seventy-one. Remember that um, Walt Disney World that was considered Phase One. Phase two was going to come uh, five years uh, later, roughly about 1975, you know, with the Asian Resort, uh, the uh, uh, Big Thunder Mesa, uh, all of that. And uh, one of the few things that came for phase two was uh, Carousel of Progress, which opened here January uh, 1975 on the exact same day that Space Mountain opened uh, uh, out here. So uh, my understanding is we're going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the history uh, of uh, the attraction, especially the history out here at Walt Disney World. And of uh, course, because your listeners always enjoy this, we'll talk about uh, some of those special things to, to see on uh, the attraction today. And uh, then, you know, you and I were uh, discussing what what should be done with the Carousel of Progress. So we'll end with that and uh, hopefully some of the listeners after listening to this uh, they might have some ideas as well absolutely we want to help them appreciate and also understand the attraction as well and and its history not just going back to the world's fair but we were talking about before you know it's about walt and one of the things i love still about this attraction is that it, it is called walt disney's carousel of progress because there is a lot of walt literally and figuratively in, inside the Carousel of Progress. Oh, oh, ab- absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, this is one of the few uh, attractions where Walt was intimately involved and hands-on right from the initial uh, concept uh, to the final uh, uh, execution. Uh, you know, uh, John Hench had gone to see, uh, uh, on Broadway, he'd gone to see the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder, and he recommended to uh, Walt... Uh, that Walt should see that play. And Walt saw it three times in, in Los Angeles and felt that this would be a great idea to tell uh, the story of electricity for General Electric. You know, a lot of people realize that for Disneyland, Walt had plans for a parallel street uh, to Main Street. At first, it was going to be International Street, very similar to uh, the concept we have at World Showcase at Epcot today. Then it was going to be Liberty Street, very similar to Liberty Square that we have out here at Magic Kingdom. But also, one of his plans was at the end of Main Street, uh, in a little cul-de-sac right off to the right-hand side, was going to be Edison Square. And it was going to be turn of the century, and uh, there'd be a statue of uh, Thomas Edison, and he was hoping General Electric was going to uh, sponsor this. And, and the main attraction in that area was a um, four-theater show called Harnessing the Lightning. Uh, with um, Wilbur K. Watt, and K. stood for kilo, kilo, kilowatt. And uh, in each of the stages, you would see how electricity, and specifically General Electric, had changed your life. So in the first theater, it would be uh, 1898, so the turn of the century. A second theater would be 
1918. Uh, then the uh, third theater would be 1958. And John Hench actually did up a concept sketch of uh, three kids wearing Mickey Mouse ears sitting in front of the TV set watching uh, the Mickey Mouse Club on TV, which you would do in 1958. And then the final scene was 19 question mark eight. And the question mark uh, was intentional because it was supposed to be somewhere in the immediate future, but the vague future. And you would be um, in your uh, house, which was literally an island in the sky. So you could see the stars above you and the stars below you. And uh, the uh, kitchen was uh, self-programmed, very similar to like Monsanto uh, House of the the Future. And there were self-propelled serving carts and uh, you know, uh, uh, big screen TVs and and all of this. But of course, in those days, you would walk. So um, there would be a three tiered viewing area, very similar to like the uh, viewing area you have at uh, uh, Stitch's Great Escape, where you're uh, uh, watching them burn the little alien to. Oh, just breaks my heart there. Uh, so you'd be on those with the railings, and you would be loaded in, and then the automatic doors would open, and so the crowd would then move into the next stage. That would do. Another group would uh, uh, funnel in. And then, of course, the final thing that you would go to is an exhibit area where you'd see all the new General Electric uh, you know, appliances. And this was Walt's proposal in 1958, and General Electric was interested, but by 1959, they were really more interested in going to the New York World's Fair. So they asked Walt if he had uh, any ideas for that. And so, of course, it's Wilbur K. Watt. We'll we'll do that. And uh, Claude Coates and Bob Gurr had been working on a revolving stage for General Motors, where they were going to tell the story of dinosaurs, because in the uh, 50s, we still associated dinosaurs and oil. So that was going to be it. So they took the idea of a rotating theater. And the rotating theater is really like a giant donut. So the, the stage is that little empty donut hole in the middle there, but it the where the audience sits is like a donut and it's on these steel uh, trucks which um, each of the trucks have uh, uh, 36 steel railroad uh, wheels, uh, railroad car wheels. So this thing can hold up to, you know, three quarters of a million pounds in each theater. Which is which is why I feel safe riding this attraction, um, you know. And uh, it, it it then moves you around. Now the interesting uh, difference, of course, is that for the World's Fair and for Disneyland, um, the theater um, moved clockwise because the final theater would you'd go up a speed ramp, and at the World's Fair you would see the Sky Dome. Spectacular, which was this huge dome designed by architect Wilton Beckett, and they had uh, uh, sunbursts and electrical storms and all that. And then at uh, in uh, California, uh, you went up that speed ramp and you saw Progress City. When it came out here to Florida, you'll notice that the theater uh, rotates counterclockwise because you don't take a steep uh, speed ramp up to the second floor to see anything at all. And that's one of the things I think that we miss. Those of us that know what that, we never saw it, but know what that was like. And when I take people through the TTA, Wedway People Mover, call it what you will, Tomorrowland Transit Authority, and you see that model of Progress Land, Progress City, Epcot, I try and explain to people that's not the whole model 
by a long shot. That's incredibly detailed, but it's a very small portion of what Progress Land, Progress City was back in Disneyland. Well, and, and you don't actually realize how small until you think that the original model was uh, 6,900 square feet, for crying out loud. And this is just a, a little window display out here in uh, uh, Magic Kingdom. And uh, again, you had all of these... Uh, again, this was Walt's design for his Epcot, the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And in California, you heard um, uh, that being said. This is Walt, This is just part of Walt's plan for Florida you know, whatever. But it wasn't called Epcot out in California because in 1967, when uh, the attraction had been moved from the World's Fair uh, to California, the Disney company wasn't sure they were going to pursue Walt's dream of Epcot. So they hedged their bets and called it Progress City. And they called it Progress City because the General Electric uh, Pavilion at the 64-65 World's Fair was Progress Land because uh, General Electric's motto at the time was progress is our most important product. And that was their motto in the 50s and the 60s. And in fact, uh, some of these uh, the listeners here might be old enough to remember in the 1960s watching uh, General Electric Theater on, on Sunday nights with Ronald Reagan as the host. <laughs> and he would start each episode where they would uh, do a dramatic play each, uh, each week with, you know, progress is our most important product. Um, so that's why it became Progress Land and Progress City, and uh, that, that big building you see towering up—that was the Cosmopolitan Hotel. And Cosmopolitan, of course, means international. Walt's concept of Epcot was always was, was it was going to be international, and that was going to be huge, and that was going to be the centerpiece for the urban center, and then everything would spoke out from there, and all the lights. And this is just amazing to me. I talked with Imagineer. Uh, Harriet Burns before she passed away and she said Walt drove us uh, crazy because the model was one eighth of an inch uh, to a foot which is really pretty large but he wanted every single building whether it was up close where the audience could see or, or way towards the back or the side every building inside had to be furnished and lit you know uh, so holy cow and you went up there, and for those who never had that experience, again, I'm a California boy, so as a kid, I loved this attraction. Because, again, I saw it on Walt talk about it on TV, Walt Disney Goes to the World's Fair. Uh, again, you would be on a three-tiered level, you know, uh, with the railings, and you would move uh, from one side of the room to the other. And as you did, it was an entire day of Epcot. You started in the morning, and then at the end, you saw night come to Epcot, and the amusement park light up and you heard narration you had father and and mother talking and when they talked about the amusement park they go now there'll be an amusement park but it's no disneyland but it but it's clean and it's friendly and we have a lot of fun there <laughs> well and that's you know we talk when we talk even about when we do the shows together yeah. we talk about the detail in walt disney world i refer to them as sort of the layers of the onion the detail that Imagine sort of follow Walt's footsteps. They put those details that most guests don't see, but if you look hard enough, they're there. Like the lights in the windows and the furnishings in the buildings. It's it was that important to him. It's still that important to a lot of people here at Disney to make those details sort of even be present in the parks as well as uh, things like the model. Right, and uh, you know when we talk about um, the uh, attraction out out here in in Florida. 
you know, I, I run into an awful lot of people who go, oh, yes, that, that's exactly the way Walt. And it, no, it's not. Walt, Walt made changes in it when it came from uh, uh, the World's Fair to uh, uh, Disneyland, especially in that, that final scene. Uh, you know, they had to eliminate things that were, you know, really part of uh, progress at the World's Fair. But even within two, three years, they were outdated. So by the time it opened in 67, that final scene now showed, uh, you know, um, uh, exciting new things like videotape. You could videotape. <laughs> oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Who could ever afford that in your own home? And, and of course, you looked out the back window and you saw the skyline of, uh, of uh, Epcot. Uh, there, when it came out uh, to Florida in 1975, there were even more massive changes because, of course, you also have to update that final scene, but you're updating an awful lot of other things uh, uh, as well. And again, one of the reasons, it, and once it came out to Florida, it went through a lot of changes. It got rehabbed in '81, then later in '85 when General Electric stopped sponsorship, and then uh, finally in '93, uh, '94. So things changed uh, over the years. The dog. Uh, we were talking about this, that one of the things we like to do on the show here is not just share information, but sort of uh, debunk uh, urban legends. And one of the ones that are going out on the Internet is that the dog in the Carousel of Progress is based on Walt's dog. No, the dog that is in there now looks nothing like any dog that Walt ever had in his entire life. However, where that started is if you ever watch the TV show Walt Disney Goes to the World's Fair and you see the mock-up of the first scene uh, with the father and the dog, the dog is a white poodle, which looks very similar to the white poodle that Walt had, that he loved very deeply uh, at, at that time in his life. And so a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and now they've all become uh, uh, Walt Disney's uh, uh, dogs. And the dog has changed names in, in California and uh, at the World's Fair. In the first scene, he's called Rover. Um, in the second scene, he's called Buster. In the third scene, he's called Sport. Uh, when it came out here to uh, Florida, in the second scene, he's called Queenie. And I have no <laughs> idea why that is. Now, he, now he's Rover through the entire thing. And, of course, the big question, maybe something we'll discover today, is, is this dog now the same dog that's over at uh, Pirates of the Caribbean with uh, the keys in the mouth. And, of course, those of you who are uh, listeners, you can take a look, too, and go, gee, the grandma in that first scene, is she the same grandma who's in the haunted mansion out here in Florida in the ballroom scene sitting there by the the fireplace? Well, anyway, the dog was was Walt's uh, 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 idea, and uh, uh, one of the Imagineers told me that, yeah, he got woken up late at night because Walt never slept. And Walt said, the attraction just needs a weenie. And the guy had no <laughs> idea what Walt was talking about. And he thought the weenie is, well, it's like the castle, right? And, and no, what Walt meant was the weenie was something that would attract people's attention, but also have a lot of joy and all of that. And so Walt added in the dog uh, 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 to there. Uh, Walt added dialogue for um, all of the characters. Uh, the original uh, design for uh, Cousin Orville was the um, uh, bathtub was facing the audience and you couldn't see uh, Orville's uh, uh, toes, you'd see his, his knees and he was reading a regular newspaper and then no privacy at all 
he would lift the newspaper to cover uh, cover his face. Walt said, no, 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 no. And he went and he literally moved the bathtub so now it's parallel uh, to the edge of the stage. And Walt took, on, took off his uh, shoes and socks and got into the bathtub and stuck his toes up there and said, this is how the toes are going to go. You know, we're going we're gonna to wiggle this way so that... Uh, um, uh, people can see this, and Walt came up with the idea of, yeah, let's have him read uh, uh, the Police Gazette uh, because that was sort of like a uh, more racy version of National Enquirer today, but it told an awful lot about the uh, uh, characters. So the way that Orville is positioned today and uh, how he wiggles his toes and uh, even how he delivers his line, all of that came from Walt. And, of course, we all know that uh, the voice, uh, you know, no privacy at all in this place, is uh, Mel Blank. And uh, a lot of people also forget that Mel also did the voice of the parrot in the first scene. Ah, progress! Um, and even Mel liked to tell the story that that was the only voice he did for Disney, and of course, that is not true. That's why you can't always believe <laughs> even the people who were there, because in 1940, Mel Blank was hired to do the voice of Gideon the Cat in Pinocchio. And he came in and he did all the lines and all that. And then, as they were going through the scenes, they decided they were going to make Gideon mute, like uh, uh, Dopey in Snow White. So they removed everything except a single hiccup, which is repeated three times in the movie. And Mel Blanc, uh, uh, in the old days, was very proud of saying it was the most expensive hiccup (laughs) in the world and tried to get it into the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for that to happen. Uh, But, yeah, Walt's hand was involved with every single thing, uh, partly because he lived through this time period. And and by the time you get to the 60s, it's Walt's vision of the 60s. And the whole core of the Carousel of Progress comes from Walt's uh, belief in the importance of the family, uh, in the uh, marvels of technology and especially American industry to make our lives uh, better. And... um, the the overall optimism that um, the future is going to be good. Progress is something to be embraced. It's not something to be uh, afraid of. And and the Sherman brothers, especially Richard Sherman, always like to say, you know, when we wrote uh, the song "Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow," we actually started the song by doing the lyrics. Walt had a dream, and that's. Uh, uh, that's the start. And they said what we tried to capture in that song was was Walt's optimism. So Walt's fingerprints are on this entire attraction, even though it's gone through lots and lots of changes. You've probably seen a lot of changes in the attraction. I have, but it goes back to, you know, that's why I said when I introduced the segment, the importance of it still being called Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, because again, like you said, it embodies that idea of family and togetherness. And again, his vision. He was always sort of, uh, he was a futurist that was, sometimes he was frustrated because the technology could never catch up to his imagination. But he was so very much involved, not only sort of from a, a philosophical level as to what his beliefs are, but literally being hands-on or toes in to, <laughs> to the creation of the attraction itself. And I remember, you know, I grew up with not Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, which, you know, we've talked to Richard Sherman in the past, is, is one of his favorites, and that was sort of his anthem for Walt. But, you know, for me, now is the time. Now is the best time because that was sort of the change in what 
GE's philosophy was, we don't want you to think about tomorrow, we want you to come buy our refrigerator today. <laughs> now is the time, now is the best time, now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize, live every minute, open your eyes and watch how you win it. Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam, tomorrow is still but a dream. Right here and now, you've got it made. The world's forward marching and you're in the parade. Now is the time. You're absolutely co correct, Lou. And, and you know, you, you see that war between um, uh, Disney fans. I've met people who that was their only experience was now is the time. And they are livid that it has gone back to great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Uh, but you're right. What General Electric did is the attraction was out there in California for uh, uh, roughly about six years, 67 to uh, 73. And General Electric saw that the attraction was still popular. It was, and again, this is a people sponge. You know, you can get over 200 people into each theater, so you can funnel through well over 3,000, close to 4,000 people an hour. And it's still very popular, but General Electric didn't feel it was getting enough bang for its buck that, uh, for instance, only 8% of the people who visited Disneyland came from east of the Mississippi. You know, 80% usually came from California and the, and the surrounding uh, uh, area. And so they felt, you know, these people aren't being encouraged to go out and buy more GE products. Also, uh, GE had a change in leadership, so they were looking for something. So, yes, they agreed to bring it out here to uh, Florida because they felt, my gosh, this is going to be a, a huge new uh, customer base for us uh, to bring this in. But the new leadership said, you know, but this song, Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, you're encouraging people to wait that something better is coming. Walt didn't see it this this way. You know, Walt didn't make fun of people that, oh, my gosh, in the 1890s uh, uh, scene, look how stupid they are that they're. No, it's like people can be happy at any point in their life with what they've got. But by golly, there's even going to be better things coming. GE didn't see it that way. It's like, yeah, now is the time. Now is the best time to buy GE products. And so the Sherman brothers were brought in. And again, it's difficult writing that song. Richard Sherman told me, he said, we were given directions like, you know, it has to be done in 13 and a half seconds. And it has to be adaptable to, you know, uh, turn of the century uh, ragtime and to jazz and to swing. And, and he said it, uh, writing the song was very much like being uh, 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 told, um, here is the shoe, build me a foot that fits into it, you know? <laughs> and, and that's how it goes. And so, uh, uh, of course, also the, the final scene w was uh, uh, updated, you know, to, to show the new General Electric uh, things. Uh, and they eliminated uh, some things. At World's Fair in uh, California, the uh, opening prologue, you have the kaleidophonic screens, which were all of these colored lights going in, in time to the music, which were just amazing. And, and is it on cue? Over to the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, you can hear the background music of Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. <laughs> Beautiful song. Beautiful song. I, I love the song. I Actually, I love Now is the Time, too. Uh, I, I've only heard on YouTube the, the revision for Interventions out in Disneyland, which uh, uses that that uh, Nathan Lane sings as Tom Morrow. I guess there's five different sets of lyrics. 
And again, one of the things that just brought me great joy in 2010 was going to Iron Man 2 and uh, uh, seeing, uh, you know, Howard Stark, Tony Stark, uh, Iron Man's father, uh, as a pseudo uh, Howard Hughes, Walt Disney doing Stark Expo 74 and the song, you know, make way, make way, make way for tomorrow today, you know, written by uh, Richard M. Sherman, you know, that really captured the... uh, that feel. Now, of course, they had to redo all of the voices, and Rex Allen, I love Rex Allen. Rex Allen, the uh, Arizona cowboy, a voice of the father at the World's Fair and at um, uh, uh, in California. Wonderful voice, did a lot of narration for uh, uh, a lot of the Disney uh, live-action animal films. But in between, what he had done is he had gone and done narration for Hanna-Barbera's animated feature, Charlotte's Web. And Disney called him up and said, well, how could you do this? You know, you're, you're Disney. You're, you're, you're family. And Rex Allen said, well, I may be part of the Disney family, but you guys haven't given me work in the last 10 years. I've got a family. So what they did is the father became uh, Andrew Duggan, uh, a, a very well-respected uh, uh, actor and, and he's the one who did the revisions as well in, in 81 and uh, 85, although in 88 he passed away from cancer. So in for the 93-94 revision, uh, they brought in um, uh, author and uh, humorist uh, Gene Shepard, uh, who wrote and narrated uh, A Christmas Story, which is why I'm surprised there's not a reference to, you know, you'll shoot out your eye with a BB gun uh, for this to happen. But fortunately for the 1933, uh, 1993-1994 rehab, uh, they brought back uh, uh, Rex Allen to do the grandfather in, in the final thing. Wonder, he just has this wonderful uh, uh, voice. So anyway, uh, bring it out uh, here. And, you know, some of the things survived. Uh, you know, one of the things for people to take a look at is uh, uh, the Robin in the first scene. Uh, because that survived from California, that survived from the World's Fair, that survived from Mary Poppins. Harriet Burns had to make that robin uh, for Mary Poppins when Julie Andrews is singing about the robins feathering their nest and all that. That's an audio animatronic. And Walt wanted, because they were going to do a close-up, a real robin skin. But robins are federally protected. And Walt actually wrote to Washington to ask if they could shoot a robin so they could have a robin skin. And he never got back any answer. But fortunately, one of the Imagineers saw at a um, natural history museum uh, that they had some uh, bird skins. And uh, so uh, Walt said, Go get those bird skins, no matter how many free tickets to Disneyland it costs. And that's it. They traded free Disneyland tickets for these robin skins. And the robin skins were packed in arsenic. And Harriet Burns said the label on them was 1893. (laughs) So they had been around for quite a while. And she said, so in the 1890s scene, it's it's very funny, the robin is really from 1893 there uh, doing that. Uh, you know, one of the, the things that I wish they would change is I, I wish they would take a look at maintenance because um, the figures, there's 32 of them. The figures are run by hydraulic fluid. Uh, a lot of the audio animatronics out at Walt Disney World now are run by uh, air and water because it's more environmentally friendly. But hydraulic fluid is still used because it really does the heavy lifting. Water and air just can't lift some of the, some of that weight. And... Um, 
So uh, uh, what happens over time is hydraulic fluid will leak. So if you'll take a look at, for instance, sometimes the necks look a little stiff in here and, and all of that, the skins need to be changed. Just like uh, the robin is okay. The robin was an arsenic. But these other skins, they, they uh, need to be changed. And, you know, even out here in Florida, things have changed all the time. When it first came out here, that scene with a rumpus room, and I don't know how many people know what a rumpus room is. A rumpus room is where you created a rumpus, literally. It, 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 you know, uh, that was a family room where you, you could, could do that. In the original version in 75, it's mother who came up with the paint stirrer using the mixer. And that's supposed to show how creative she is. Well, nowadays, that's sexist, you know, how stupid mother is. So now it's father who's come up with that because, of course, the philosophy now in TV sitcoms and all this is father is an idiot. That's not father knows best, so so you go with that. One of the things that we'll see in, in the version uh, uh, today is it's no longer Cousin Orville, it's Uncle Orville. I have no clue why that happens. Uh, they've, they've changed some of the names. Uh, Jane was the daughter. One of the scenes that people never saw out here but only saw in California was uh, Jane was sitting out on a front porch with her boyfriend and mother turns on the electric lights, you know, on the porch to say, Jane, it's time to come on. That's not here. Also, there's no scene uh, out here where uh, uh, in the 1890s uh, the sun was uh, vacuuming, you know, one boy power uh, vacuum. All of those gone. Names changed. The sun didn't get a name until uh, it came out here to um, uh, Florida because the sun had no lines in the World's Fair or uh, in um, uh, California, so there's no need for a name. Now he, now he's Jim. And the daughter has changed from Jane to uh, uh, Patty or Patricia or Trish. So as long as we're talking about uh, the family and this family unit that, that goes through all these changes, maybe you can answer a question for me mm-hmm. as, we're, as we're looking. At, and there's such great details, like you said, like the Robin and some names and some other things we'll, we can point yeah. out along the way. But in the first scene, in the vignette on the left-hand side, when you see Mother, there's a little girl who's helping her there. And it's not Patricia because Patricia's on the other side. Who is the missing <laughs> sister and what happened to her is, is you know, is it... Is it the sister we don't talk about? Is Has she not been paroled as yet? The sister has grown up, is the official Disney uh, <laughs> uh, uh, spin on that. And who is it for me to uh, to disagree? Originally, it was the son uh, uh, doing that. But then when the son got moved over to another scene, they replaced it with uh, uh, a young sister. And so they play fast and loose because, again, Disney has always been ambiguous about are we seeing the same family surviving through roughly 100 years or are these different families but they're similar, you know? And uh, that was one of the reasons for dogs being called different names and different breeds because dogs gone now, you know? Uh, And again, uh, at uh, uh, the Disneyland uh, version, also World's Fair, uh, grandma and Grandpa were not um, in the final scene. In fact, the mother says Grandpa and Grandma are not with us anymore. They're in a retirement community, <laughs> and uh, our son and daughter aren't here because they're picking them up at the jet point. You know, and Grandpa's in his 80s. That's his golf store <laughs> uh, score. Um, so it wasn't out here uh, until Grandpa and Grandma and the um, and it, the original voice for Grandpa out here was uh, uh, James Gregory who was uh, uh, Lieutenant Luger on Barney Miller and a bunch of other things. Once you hear the voice or you look it up on IMDb, you'll, you'll go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 
but it wasn't until it was out here in Florida that the entire family was together uh, uh, out there in that uh, final scene. But, you know, and, and Lou, Lou is such a stinker. You think he's the nicest guy in the world. And he is. And he is. But as, as we were sitting down, he says, yeah, I've got a question to ask you, but I'm not going to ask you until we're on the air. You know, let's let's see. You know, are you smarter than Jim Cork? No, because I never knew the answer. And I said, you know, yeah. what, I noticed this a while ago. I yeah. said, what happened to this missing sister? It really is the the sister that we don't talk about. And the same thing too. You know, is it that same family that just ages really, really well? Even when you saw them again in, in Horizons, yeah. <laughs> you know, Grandma and Grandpa still looking pretty good <laughs> for being 150 years old. Or is it sort of? this representation of a family and just how they're depicted in different times over the year. You know, an inter- and we can certainly start a lot of urban legends <laughs> right today on, on this podcast. And and what you mentioned was exactly true. Imagineer George McGinnis, who worked on Horizons, said, uh, yes, that's supposed to be an extension of this family. And in fact, that's why uh, General Electric pulled out in 1985 their sponsorship of Carousel of Progress, because by that time, Epcot had opened in Horizons. Uh, had opened, and that's why in Horizons you still have that little clip of "Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow" is the song it's supposed to be the same family, and again they're introducing the future. Walt's feeling was you didn't want to introduce the concept of death in the future; you just avoid that, you know. Except in uh, Mr. Toad, it's okay to get hit by a train. <laughs> yes, the the only attraction, at, uh, only Disney attraction where you go to hell and people still come out smiling, you know. Uh, and and again, the whole point of Mr. Toad was Walt's storytelling is that stories have consequences. So if you drive like an idiot, that's what's going to happen. And so that was the natural conclusion. Nothing else it made sense. That Well, that's what's going to happen if you keep doing this, you know. Um, so for Walt, this was all, yep, th- th- this, is, this is true. No, I thought one of the things you were going to ask is, you know, we have an Imagineer, um, uh, Kim Irvine. You know, related to uh, Richard Irvine, who was the president of uh, Imagineering, you know, when um, Walt Disney World uh, opened. And uh, she came in and posed for the daughter. Uh, Although the face is not hers. The face uh, is a combination of different teenage faces that uh, Blaine Gibson had uh, uh, come in and model. All of the female arms are Harriet Burns. Harriet Burns literally shaved her arms to make the moldings, and she she told me she said, "You know, you don't realize all the little hairs on your arms until they're gone, and then they're growing back in, and it's the most awkward thing in the world." Uh, the father, by the way, was modeled after an actor by the name of Preston Hansen, uh, who did an awful lot uh, of work, and, and and in fact had a had a, a long career. You know, it was in things like. Uh, uh, Dallas, an A-team, and, and all of that as a B-movie actor. And he came in, and they did a, a casting of his face, and uh, they came in and, and took uh, uh, photos, and he posed for Blaine Gibson, um, and uh, all of that. And he looks, he looks a lot like Walt. <laughs> he does. I, I wonder if that was why he was cast. It, it's interesting. He never did uh, a Disney uh, uh, film. Uh, but that's a, that's a little thing. And, and as, as long as we're telling people things to look at, you know, even though General Electric pulled out, it's still in the attraction. Take a look in uh, the second scene and you see the Hot Point oven. Hot Point uh, by the, the 20s was part of General Electric. It had been a separate company and then uh, General Electric bought it out. And in the third scene, the uh, refrigerator is um, uh, General Electric. 
And and why do these things do this? Because we bring good things to life. Is, is the vacuum cleaner still the red vacuum cleaner still a, a GE vacuum cleaner too? Yes. So so you've got all those little uh, uh, GE is getting uh, has been getting free publicity <laughs> since 1985. Well, I, and you were talking about you know some of the names that are lost because you know the names of, of Rexel. Most people wouldn't know unless maybe we talk mm-hmm. about them, and, and that's why I love sort of letting people sort of listen for things and look for things as well too. And I always talk about how uh, you know people that work on attractions and they're not really credited. You know, the, the, Disney honors people by giving them a window on Main Street. They may get a tombstone in uh, over in the haunted mansion. And there's very few exceptions other than maybe the castle mosaic. But sometimes, like here, they do recognize and they do sort of honor, maybe pay subtle tribute to a couple of Imagineers, like a Marty Sklar, whose name you could see in the final scene, and Herb Ryman, too, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, to give credit where credit is due, uh, Marty Sklar was, was the primary writer uh, for this, but Larry Clemens was involved. He, he was a very good writer at the, the studio at, at the time, worked on um, uh, the animated version of uh, Robin Hood, but also... Uh, intros for uh, Walt for the uh, uh, TV series and uh, all of that. Uh, Mark Davis worked on some of the vignette sketches. Uh, so did Sam McKim. Sam McKim actually hand painted uh, the Niagara fan, and it's the same one from uh, uh, California. So that uh, and and he did it so it was a, a souvenir of the time period. John Hench, of course, uh, 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 did uh, uh, some uh, design work in here. Claude Coates. Uh, uh, as well. Uh, but again, the Disney organization, Walt's philosophy is we're all doing this together. He, he said, I'm not even Disney <laughs> anymore. You know, Disney is, is this something over and above what, what I am. And so everybody did this and loved having uh, the opportunity to work on that. And Walt, of course, what a, a sly guy. You know, he, he did the World's Fair attractions not just because he wanted to be exposed to an East Coast audience because people kept saying uh, Disney type of theme park entertainment wouldn't fly on the East Coast. And uh, he didn't uh, uh, just do this to, to utilize his staff, you know, to put them to work. Basically, General Electric was paying the research and the development <laughs> for audio animatronics, for crying out loud. The state of Illinois it was as well, for great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And then Walt had all of these attractions. He could move back to Disneyland. That was, that was in the contract. You know, Marty had to convince General Electric to sponsor it in uh, California. And he pointed out that within uh, the first year at the World's Fair, 7 million people rode the attraction. 15 million people in the two years it was at the World's Fair. In the six years it was at Disneyland, over 31 million people rode Carousel of Progress. You know, it, it's just um, it's just uh, fun, you know, and, and even with all the changes that have been made, you, you get that um, you know, you get that Walt uh, feeling. And, and one of the things that you, you pointed at uh, the end there is, yes, on, on the bulletin board on that last scene, you know, posted up on the bulletin board, it said, uh, it says, Marty called, wants changes, you know, and uh, gosh, what a wonderful springboard, because we were talking about uh, uh, changes, right? Marty may not be the only one that wants changes. I mean, look, when we talk about the Carousel of Progress, um, rarely do you see the line sort of snaking through Tomorrowland. Uh, it is sort of set off back here, and, and you know, it's in a day and age where 
Uh, a lot of kids want more exciting things. They want more interactive kind of things. And over the years, uh, you know, the Carousel of Progress became a seasonal attraction, which is usually the death knell. Usually when something is seasonal, it means come in and see it as fast as you can. Uh, I, I said John Lasseter came to do just that because he was afraid to, that it was going away. Uh, there's been a long-standing rumor that because of its connection to Walt, uh, there's a sort of unwritten uh, belief that, you know, there should always be a Carousel of Progress here. There should always be Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress. But you talked about um, the attendance. You talked about maybe some maintenance issues. We, a lot of people talk about that final scene. And although I will tell you, I have a six and an eight going on 38-year-old, yeah. old soul child, children, they've come in and they enjoy this attraction and they have a lot of fun with it and they enjoy the music. But for years, we've been talking about what's next, what needs to be changed, what should happen to the Carousel of Progress. And as we were talking sort of offline before we started, um, you basically enumerated sort of those four different options. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's kind of hit them one by one because I think this will be an interesting discussion, not only for (laughs) us, but I certainly want the people who are listening to come by the show notes at wdwradio.com and leave their comments as well, uh, especially because of the history and the nostalgia uh, and the ties to Walt for this attraction. So one of the options to do with Carousel of Progress is what? And, and, again, and again, I think this is a, a wonderful opportunity for uh, listeners to get involved, and I'm looking forward them, to them doing that. You know, oftentimes I hear, oh, Jim, you know everything. I don't. I know enough to know how much I don't know. And also, I always love getting different perspectives, you know, because, again, I grew up seeing this in California, so I'm seeing it through different eyes. And uh, so we talked about options. Now, the, the first option, of course, is one that has been talked about uh, for years. And what you alluded to is in t- year 2000, they were talking about closing the attraction. And John Lasseter made a special trip to come out and see the show because he thought it was the last time he would ever see this show. And here we are in 2011, right? Um, uh, so the first option, of course, is, my gosh, let's just put it out of its uh, misery, you know, uh, uh, no, we're not doing any uh, maintenance, but by gosh, there's still labor costs, there's still overhead for uh, uh, electricity, uh, uh, things like uh, this. Yes, we're not seeing uh, uh, the traffic in there that we're seeing at at other attractions. Uh, Let's just uh, uh, close it and say, you know, you had a nice run, but there were other things that were here that were just as good and and they're gone now and you know Walt as part of Walt's belief in progress we're moving on to the next thing so what do you think about that close the attraction so Walt Disney said and and Marty Sklar has articulated over uh, through the years that they never set out to build a museum and sometimes it is time for attractions to close even if they seem like they're popular there may be various reasons many of us lament the passing of Mr. Toad and 20,000 Leagues and Horizons but maybe those weren't the most popular attractions at the time. We're sitting here right out at the exit of Carousel of Progress, and as we've been talking, I've been watching people come out, and the Magic Kingdom is not crowded today, but as each theater door opens, there is a good-sized crowd that comes out. So I think that, and I know it was just a euphemism, you say put it out of its misery. <laughs> I don't think it is that it's such a, a, a condition that it's irreparable, it's unattractive, it doesn't hold... Um, an enjoyable, educational, fun time for guests that come in here. So for me, closing the attraction, sort of literally shutting the doors, you know, 
knocking everything down inside and gutting it and putting in a, you know, Chick-fil-A <laughs> is not uh, is not something that I hope would be an option. I think there are, if you don't like it the way it is now, uh, and again, you can turn around and sort of see, watch the, the reactions of the people. Of all ages. Right. And there's a, they're a good size crowd. And that's the thing too, Jim, is that this is one of those attractions that, again, Walt set out to build. He wanted a place and things that families can have fun together. So the little kid, the grandma, the person who may not, may have some mobility issues, they can all enjoy this attraction together. It's air conditioned. If that's your thing, if you want to take a nap, that shouldn't be why you go and see it. Uh, but it, it's not bumpy. It's not jerky like all the new thrill, thrill rides. Everybody can enjoy it. In fact, I'm even worried about the uh, uh, Snow White uh, mine train. Everybody's excited about that. Uh, I'm excited, but in terms of, of, of seeing that mine cart wiggle from side to side as well as going forward, I know that I have a nephew who's going to be concerned about that. If, if my parents were still alive, they would be concerned about that. This is an attraction that everybody can go on. On October 1st, I made a, a point of coming here to visit this. There was a little girl sitting in, in the first row, uh, came up to about the size of my knee, and she was just delighted at the dog. She didn't care about anything else that was going on. Oh my gosh, jumping up and down. But from a business standpoint, you know, that's one of the reasons Skyway closed down. They said, what it's taking us to maintain this ride is the same amount of labor and effort that it would on an e-ticket ride. Now, another option, of course, is, well, let's just leave it alone. Nothing to see here. Move on. Move on. And so for, for folks like you and I, maybe some of the people who are listening, it'll be just that little hidden treasure, you know, to get out of the way. Uh, you know, Disney, just forget that it, that, that it's here. Go on and, and, and do Avatar Land and whatever. You know, just, just let us have this and, and let it alone. That that could be an option. And see, and you're right. You could just, as it has been, again, 2000, they thought it was closing 11 years later. It hasn't really, you know, they've changed the carpets. They've, up, they've changed the seating a number of years ago, which obviously meant that if they're going to invest that time and the money to do that, they plan on keeping this attraction open in some form or fashion. And I don't think it's almost the, you know, ignore that big dome in the corner kind of thing, move on to Space Mountain. Because I'm, I'm watching the crowds sort of funnel out of here, and I and I still see that it is popular. So I think it's it's popular for those of us who are nostalgics. It's certainly popular for those who have never been. Remember, we take things for granted. There's still a lot of people here, like that family over there with the two kids. This is their first time at Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. So for them, this is a new, this is a novel attraction. Uh, it is not the high-speed, 3D thrill kind of thing, but I think they will appreciate it for what it is. It's that simple, uh, family-friendly uh, kind of attraction that everybody can enjoy. And and see, and I agree with that, too. In With all the changes that I would like to, to make, and we'll, we'll talk about that because I'm going to save those for my final two uh, options uh, here, I feel that this show still works as a show. You know, I think it still has that storytelling core that Walt uh, put in there. And and I know later we're going to even go see the the Tiki Room, and I'll, I think the Tiki Room probably uh, works uh, as well uh, because again, it still has that core, that belief of the family, that belief of optimism, that belief in in uh, um, technology. And for me, that that st- still works. So I feel that this actually brings a heart to uh, uh, Tomorrowland. I don't see anything else here in Tomorrowland that I would consider the heart 
you know, uh, of that. Uh, other things that are important, other things that are great, but I think this is is the heart and that glimpse of Walt's future. Okay, a third option. Oh, wait, just real quick. Yeah. And you mentioned Tiki Room, and I think that's a good parallel because it is, it's not high-tech, it's not sexy, it's very, very simple. Um, the music that's in there now is certainly not, you know, no kid is going to come in there and recognize that music, but my mom will go in and say, oh, I remember that. And I've gone in there with people say, oh, I remember that from this show, that show, whatever it is, when I was a kid. That, too, is Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. And I think because of their connection to Walt, uh, I think they're. I think that makes them important attractions to stay here. So go ahead, option okay. number three. Yeah, well, and, and when we do the podcast on, on Orange Bird and Tiki Room, <laughs> which we're, we're going to go, we can go through that. Maybe there should be an attraction in every land that is Walt Disney's attraction. So Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress here in Tomorrowland and Walt Disney's Tiki Room in Adventureland. Maybe there should be Walt Disney's... Uh, uh, Mark Twain. Maybe there should be Mar- Walt Disney's, you know, whatever. If uh, this isn't it, what attraction in the Magic Kingdom for you is Walt's attraction? It sort of embodies the, the spirit, the belief, the technology, his hands in it. What do you think? The trains. <laughs> Walt Disney's trains. Come on. And and, and maybe the second one, maybe, the, maybe the, the steamboat. But trains. Trains, you know? And uh, the going back in, in, into time and the being able to, to uh, take a journey somewhere new and, and, and explore. The trains. Trains still work for me. Okay. I thought you were going to say Stitch's Great Escape, but yeah, uh, okay. move on. <laughs> well, now, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there's people in Disney marketing and, and Synergy and Brand, all of whom I love dearly, are probably thinking, is there some way we can make Stitch, you know? <laughs> Walt, lo- Walt loved mischief. And so that's, um, no, okay, third option. Let's bring in an entirely new attraction. Now, obviously, we can't bring in America Sings. I loved America Sings. Actually, if I was going to bring America Sings to Florida, I'd put it in Liberty Square, the history of America through music. But maybe there's a different attraction. Certainly not interventions that went into to Disneyland. And when they put in, interventions in, they actually ruined the rotation of the stage. So a lot would have to happen for that stage to rotate again. But... Um, come up with an entirely new attraction. You know, one of the things that they were discussing at Disneyland was uh, George Lucas was going to take over the Carousel Theater. There was going to be a crashed space saucer, and basically you would go in and you see these performers from other worlds who are performing for you. They're on their way to a gig. They're performing, waiting for their saucer to get uh, fixed. And so there's all sorts of of options. You know, could there be a, a Buzz Lightyear storyline here. You know, this is a wonderful concept of uh, you know, that, that moving theater. It's, it's a, it was really something innovative. I come from a theater background, as you know, really something innovative. Maybe it's time for a whole brand new show for the theater. So you don't see necessarily gutted high-tech attraction. You want to keep that sort of multiple theater spinning mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the donut hole, as right. it were. Uh, does it need to be something that's based off of a franchise? Is it waiting for the next big franchise? Or can it be something that sort of stands on its own? Does it have to be tied to Toy Story or The Incredibles or whatever, you know, maybe coming next down the pipeline? Well, of course. You tie it to Avatar. And, and you can use 3D screens and you got people sitting there. So, my gosh. And, and no. Um, I don't think it has to be tied to a, a franchise. I, I always like when when Disney uh, takes something. But, no, I don't think they have to look through and go, oh, well, Walt did uh, Moon Pilot. 
in the in the in the 60s. We're going to theme it to Moon Pilot. Who cares? The cat from outer space. No, uh, they could come up with something um, completely new. You know, maybe it's Sunny Eclipse, maybe whatever. But keep the theater, but change the show. You know, we've changed out uh, shows, but kept the theater. Uh, um, and I say we, I'm using the Disney we here. Disney, Disney has, has kept theaters, but changed out the shows, and, and, and that has improved. Sometimes it hasn't worked, changing the show. Okay, fourth option. The, the, this is uh, fourth option, and then I'm going to save my fifth option, which is my absolute favorite. But the fourth option is when the show was originally created, there's a 20-year gap between scenes. So you start at the gay 90s. In fact, Father is holding a newspaper that says 1890, even though in this version they make reference to the uh, St. Louis World's Fair, so that would be 1904. Okay, And then you jump to the 20s, and in this version out here they make reference to Lindbergh's flight and Al Jolson's jazz singer, so that's 27, right before the Depression. Good idea. And then you make uh, another uh, 20-year jump into the frantic 40s, and it's obviously towards the end of the 40s, going into the 50s, because, again, you're dealing with uh, TV. And the original version of the show, you watched black and white cowboys shoot them out. And so the gag was, when you went into the final scene, you saw a color TV. It was the exact same film strip, but it was in color. Uh, And then uh, you jumped 20 years into, um, you know, the, the 60s. So at the World's Fair, it was the General Electric uh, medallion home of the future. And then when it uh, went to uh, uh, California, you know, it moved a little further in, in, into the uh, late 60s. When it, when it came out here, it was in the 70s. And in 81, they updated it into the 80s, you know. Uh, now it's uh, uh, the turn of the, the millennium there. So basically what is happening is you're jumping 20 years, 20 years, and then that final jump, you're jumping 60 to 70 years. You know, that's a shock to this. What have, what have these people been doing for 60, 70 years? So let's go through and redesign the sets so now there's only a 40-year jump. So, yes, you start at the turn of the century. I think that's a great place to start. And, again, since you're not tied to General Electric, you can go into all sorts of other uh, things as well, you know, to show there's other progress other than just electricity. Uh, then you're going to jump the 40 years to the 40s. You're going to jump the 40 years to the 80s, and because there's people around today who remember the 80s. Not a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll have the, these wonderful college students come up to me, and they'll talk about Disney history, and I'm just so impressed they know, and they turned out they were born in 1991. <laughs> and I still have clothes in my closet that I bought in 1991 that I wear today. And then the final jump is you jump another 40 years. So, uh, again, you're not into the Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon zone, but you're into what Walt always liked, which is the world that's, you know, just around the corner. You know, um, and Steve Jobs would have been great to create that scene. But so, yes, let's go through and change all of the sets so now there's a 40-year jump rather than a 20-year jump. That's my fourth option. So... your fourth option seems to encapsulate, and, and I have no problem with you know you can go back and update some of those earlier yeah. scenes and do, but it all comes back to the current discussion and dialogue, which is the final scene. The final scene is supposed to be the future, the present, whatever it is. Right now, it's 25, 30 years in the past, but I think you run into the same problem 
that they ran into here in Tomorrowland, that they run into in Epcot, is that, and I think Walt always ran into this problem mm-hmm. too, is that the day that Tomorrowland here opened, yeah. it was not about tomorrow. Flight to the Moon was about something that took place two years early. The Grand Prix Raceway wasn't all that futuristic, and the right. Skyway is a technology yeah. that had been around. So how do you predict, how do you, more importantly, how do you portray the future? If you took something right now and you gutted that final scene, what do you put in there? An iPhone, an iPad, you know, Bluetooth, the wireless technology. But three years from now, people go, remember how those <laughs> iPads, how cute those were? Because it's always, we're never going to be able to keep it updated enough to keep the technology both fresh and certainly not futuristic, too. I think you have hit on the key challenge to this, this attraction. That has always been the key challenge, you know? And in fact, um, what they did, of course, at, at, at Disneyland and, and what they've done out here is you're going back to a retro future, you know, uh, the future of, of the pulps, the uh, magazines, and the old science fiction films. And, and, in fact, that's why we've got gears. You know, and people think the gear out in front of Carousel of Progress is, well, that's because there's this big gear that's moving. Your, no, it, it's the whole theme of the Tomorrowland here of, of that it, almost sort of a steampunk uh, uh, type of look. That's the challenge. That's why I've saved for last my number one option. Those of you listening... I told Lou, you love him dearly, that if he said storm the castle, you would go out and get the torches and you'd be out there t- today because you love Disney that much. That's one of the things I've, I've seen in, in Lou's uh, listeners is I, I see an awful lot of Disney fans who are jaded, uh, who are worried, who have given up hope on things. But, but that pixie dust is, is always still in your eyes. This is what Jim Corcus would like to see happen with the Carousel of Progress. Take it back to the absolute original version. And so what you do with that final scene is you take it back to Walt's vision of the 60s. So you have the references to Walt's vision of Epcot. Maybe even the whole house is designed as Walt saw it as Epcot in the 60s. You know, you bring in an artist like Shag or... or, um, Kevin Kidney and Jody Daly, who I love the work that they do. Absolutely outstanding. You know, and do that retro-futuristic 60s. It, I, one of the, the uh, TV series that I absolutely loved growing up as a kid, and I still watch today, is The Avengers with John Steed and Emma Peel. Of, of course, I'm still in love with <laughs> Diana Rigg of the 60s. But uh, if you take a look at that, it really isn't Britain. It is. It really isn't UK of the 60s. But it has that whole 60s feel, that image of the 60s. And so what we do is, yes, the other scenes stay the way they are, although, you know, you refresh them, you do the maintenance, you know, you get rid of the dust bunnies on the scrims and, and watch where, you know, they've started to get a little threadbare and, you know, do that. And bring back Rex Allen's voice. The voice tracks are there. Bring back Rex Allen, you know, as the father, you know. Um, and, and do that. And so this really then truly becomes... Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress because it's capturing that Carousel of Progress that Walt saw in the 60s, Walt's last wonderful vision of progress, a global community, the family together, you know, um, and spending the time together at, at, at Christmas. 
that's what I want. That's the option I want. And so those of you who are listening and you go, oh, that other option Jim said was the best one, I'm telling you this is the one we need to go with. And that might, like you said, that might sort of resolve all the issues. How do you address that final scene that will always be out of date? How do you get back to it being truly Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress to let it sort of be up there with the train and something that he had such a, a literal and figurative hand in creating and dreaming about uh, and putting together the original song is back there. Again, we, we talked about the Tiki Room going, you know, back to the future, as it were, mm-hmm. to that original and people embracing it once again. Uh, I think this is where we want to hear the listener's opinion as to what their ideal option is and what do they think about that. Is that something that, let's sort of play devil's advocate for a second, this is all about making magic and it's all about pixie dust, it's all about family fun and entertainment and everybody here is just smiling and have a good time, but it's also about a business. Mm -hmm. And from a business perspective, would it make sense to spend X amount of dollars in order to do it right and in order probably a, a very large sum of money to take this attraction, multiple scenes, multiple theaters, and bring it back. Bring it back to a more modern day vision of what it looked like in 1964. Because if you do, are you able to justify it? Will that bring in more guests? Because that's what it's going to come down to. You, you need to, if you're going to spend money, it's obviously to make money. Will bringing that carousel of progress sort of back to life, for lack of a better term, will that translate dollar-wise? Will that potentially bring in guests? Do you advertise on TV, on Good Morning America, the new and improved 40-year-old retro carousel of progress? And I'm not mm-hmm. saying it would or wouldn't. Right. That's me sort of asking that question to the audience. No, I, I think that's a valid question. And we always need to realize that when we talk about uh, the Disney business, it's show and it's business. And the business has to be healthy in order for the show to go on. Uh, I think that taking it back you're going to get that uh, initial uh, uh, punch because, again, you've, you've got so many Disney websites now and Disney uh, podcasts, although I know none of you listen to any other podcast <laughs> other than Lou's. There are a, a couple out there and besides they should, But they should. But, but to get different perspectives, I think that, that touching into Walt, because I don't think Disney, the Disney company has understood how to really touch in as a tribute to their founder. Yes, you've got the partner statue, but basically you're marketing Walt as as a, uh, a piece of product on a t-shirt or things like this. This is the one thing where this, this is the heart, something you can always point to. You can market it as an alternative to those rock'em sock'em rides, you know? I, I wish we had more stage shows, you know? At, at Disney, I will tell you my favorite stage show was the Golden Horseshoe Review. Long gone. Long gone. Out here it was the Diamond Horseshoe Review. Long gone. Kids kids of the kingdom. You know, used to have a Galaxy Search stage out here. All, all of these gone. One of the reasons Walt loved the, this show is that the show was always consistent. The show would always go on. And Walt said in a Canadian broadcasting interview, and nobody's going off for uh, coffee and I don't have to deal with unions. And when I say bring it back to the original, bring it back to the illusion of the original. Because audio animatronics have advanced. You know, that technology has advanced. You can add in those little tweaks, but it can still look like it was in, in the 60s. And uh, again, I think this is something 
that every person of every age can enjoy. And there's that huge long line always out in front of Buzz Lightyear, even with Fast Pass and all this. This would be that wonderful spillover as well. People are, are running into this by accident now. You know, people love going and seeing something. Uh, I, I would be interested to see what the figures are of the uh, uh, Tiki Room under original management, whether, you know, um, uh, numbers have gone uh, up and whether that's just a curiosity factor or whether people are really going in there because they don't want the the jaded cynicism that's out there, you know, those smart aleck, nudge, nudge, wink, wink remarks, they want to feel good. And, and I think Carousel of Progress would be one of those things that there would be the initial rush because it's new, the initial rush because we're honoring our founder. You know, this is the, the one place where, where we're, uh, we're doing it, where the entire family can, can uh, uh, get together. But I think word of mouth then would start to build on this. And uh, that's how, uh, you know, a lot of attractions at, at Disneyland especially became popular was word of mouth because nobody had any idea. And then they go, oh, yes, we went on this and this is it. And as you point out, this is a great place, air conditioning. You get to sit down. Something for all ages. And I think the fact of being a tribute to Walt, the person honoring his, his legacy and his vision, is important to us, mm-hmm. and I point to you and I, and, and, and I think there's a segment of the population that's probably listening that's important too. But again, playing devil's advocate because I have to put my right. the, the money that my parents put to law school to some sort of good use, do you think that that's important for the everyday guests, that mom and dad that are saving for three years to take their two kids? Do you think that's something that would drive them or be important to them? Or do you think that if Disney says we've got X amount of dollars, we're going to rehab the Carousel of Progress, or we're going to take that empty spot where the Galaxy Palace Theater once sat, and we're going to put a new attraction in there. Uh, again, that's always the, the hard decision, you know? D- Disney can extend the monorail, you know? But the question that always comes down is, the amount of money we're spending, do we really want to spend it on that, or do we want to spend it on uh, something else? You know, uh, uh, 10 years ago, uh, when I was working for the Disney Company, they had a focus group over there at... Uh, Uh, the studios and they were asked you know if we extended the monorail you know so for instance the monorail from the studios uh, to DAC and then maybe some stops at some of the uh, uh, resorts in between and then connect that monorail eventually to the Epcot monorail would you be willing to pay for a transportation pass and if you were willing to pay for a transportation pass, how much would you be willing to pay so we can see if any of that would offset, you know, uh, the investment? And people were willing. People would, were willing to pay for uh, because uh, uh, you know that uh, bus travel on property can be a challenge. And it, the monorail is not only it's a great transportation medium, but it's an attra- I think for a lot of us, the monorail is still a nostalgic type of attraction. Yeah, abs- abs- absolutely. You know, Uh and again, at Disneyland, you know, it, it, it curved, and and uh, Walt was told, well, you know, the monorail is meant for distances, so it should be, you know, it should go straight. And he says, people are going to enjoy curving, and they're going to enjoy seeing the other monorail coming the other way. And he was right. He was, at, as, as always, because he had that instinctual understanding of what people, uh, you know, uh, liked and wanted. And, and I think some of that still exists in... Um, the Carousel of Progress. 
and I think even the carousel as it exists today um, is worth your time, is worth coming uh, uh, to visit. Not everybody agrees with me, but I, but I think if we tweaked it so it were, really was Walt's carousel, I think you solved that problem of always having to constantly update it. You have, uh, again, from a business standpoint, yes, you have a lot of upfront cost, but you're not having any back end coming in, which has always been the problem with this. Yeah, and this is one, like I said, that I certainly want to hear. And look, we've honestly, we've talked for a long time, but we've really sort of only touched on some details and stories and history about the attraction. And I want to know on the most basic level, is the Carousel of Progress a must-do? When you come to the parks, is it something you do every time? Is it a one-and-done? Is it a, oh, if I bring new people? And more importantly, share your opinion. If you Do you think it should be... Uh, refurbished? Do you think the final scene should be changed? The whole attraction should be changed? Which one of those options, if any, is most appealing or to you? Maybe or you have one of maybe you have we one that we never thought about. about. Um, but I would love to hear, because I think some of the things that we say and that we talk about now, you know, you never know who may be listening. And I'm sure uh, the Carousel of Progress is on the radar. Uh, it is something that Disney's probably always thinking about and wondering what to do next with it. So I think it's an interesting conversation, especially at this time, uh, you know, nearly 40 years after it's been here and, and having such a, a long history behind it. But um, like I said, speaking of great, big, well, beautiful wait. people, what? <laughs> well, they, you see, they should be listening to us. Bob, Bob Iger, John Lasseter should be saying, you know, we're going to f- uh, fly out uh, Lou and Jim for a week. You know, we're going to uh, wine and dine them. We're going to pick their brains, and then we're going to send them away. We're gonna, also going to have them sign those non-disclosure contracts, so anything we do, none, none of them well, According to my son, who's six-year-old, um, that is exactly what happens, because when he had a chance to meet uh, Ron Schneider, the original Dreamfinder, yeah. the other night, we went home, we, we put on the DVD I made of the original Journey to Imagination, and he looks at me serious as a heart attack, and he goes, Daddy, and he points to me with his little finger. He said, the next time you talk to Bob Iger, you tell him to bring back the Dream Finder. So he goes, pinky swear. I said, okay, I pinky swear. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, even the six-year-olds are a little nostalgic as well, too. Uh, but there's so much more we could talk about this. There's a lot more that we have to cover as well, too. And, again, there's so many... Uh, great stories that only Jim Corkus can tell. If you want to hear more, go back and listen to old episodes. Stay tuned for future episodes. More importantly, go out and buy yourself, buy a friend, uh, and buy Bob Iger a copy of Vault of Walt. I'll put a link to it. You can get that at Amazon. Uh, it is a great collection of stories about so many uh, Disney attractions and Walt Disney himself, an incredible book. Uh, it is a must-have for any Disney fan's library. And Lou, as always, thank you for giving me this uh, platform to, to share some of the stories, share some of the information. And I would also like this time, I always thank you, I'd like to thank the listeners because so many of them come up and they say, we're trying to s- save the stories. Those stories that you tell Lou, we try and share them with other people. And I know they are because I see them popping up and, and not one of them go and Jim Cork has said, it's like, <laughs> this story, in fact, there were stories that came out about the Roy statue that even came out officially from Disney that I know Disney didn't have that information. The only way they could have got it was from listening to me talking to you on the show and saying, Blaine Gibson told me such and such, and, and there it is. And, uh, in fact, a couple of your listeners come up and say, we're trying to save those stories. We're trying to go around and talk to people in the parks today. We're trying to talk to our parents. We're trying to look through old things that we have. And that's 
that's what is so important because it it's in danger of, of disappearing. And again, what a perfect time for Bob Iger. What a wonderful <laughs> legacy for him to leave that he listens to you and I and makes those changes, <laughs> right? Well, like I said, um, we're so grateful for you sharing these stories and we want the listeners, when they do come here with maybe that new family or, or a new friend or whatever it might be, bring them to the Carousel of Progress. Make them understand the legacy. Watch that pre-show video of Walt and the Sherman Brothers and explain to them why this attraction uh, is so important and some of the history and the stories and the details behind it. Uh, also, look for more of Jim's stories behind the stories in Celebrations Magazine. We are so honored to have you be a part uh, of, of, our, uh, of our print magazine and all the stuff you do there. So, Jim Corkus from the Vault of Walt, author of the Vault of Walt, uh, thank you so much. And, and not as short as he sounds. I'm not as short as I sound. He's, he's handsomer than he sounds. Uh, I am as, as short as I appear in, in the videos. Uh, and so maybe we should, you know what? In, in honor of uh, of Walt and, and Bob Iger's continuing legacy, we should go and experience the Carousel of Progress together. Because there's always something new to see. I, I, every time I come, I see something new. And what a wonderful way of experiencing it, experiencing with Lou Mangiello. Thank you all. Thank you again, Lou. And we've got to do some more podcasts, buddy. Absolutely. Just a dream away. So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit.